Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome to this week's edition of the Baseball America College Podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me, as always, is my colleague, Joe Healy. And joining us a little bit later will be Northeastern coach Mike Glavin. We're going to talk about the Huskies today on the podcast. Huskies coming off of a Colonial Athletic Association title and their second NCAA tournament appearance in the last three seasons so very interested to get into all of that and more uh, with Coach Glavin here on the Baseball America College podcast, which is presented by Rapsodo. Rapsodo has become the industry standard in player performance data. Coaches use Rapsodo data as a measuring stick for player development and evaluation. The Rapsodo National Player Database is a free service that allows you to see how you stack up against your peers and provides a pathway to get discovered by scouts. You can check out the Rapsodo National Player Database at rapsoto.com slash national database. All right, Joe, we're, uh, we're back from, from Thanksgiving. Hopefully everyone enjoyed our Thanksgiving-themed uh, show, I guess, episode, whatever, last week uh, with, uh, with Coach Rodriguez. Uh, and here we are uh, back from, from what was, uh, of course, a, a good holiday, lots of good food, Hopefully everyone got to spend some time with the family as well. Uh, it was it was certainly an enjoyable uh, time where I was, Joe. Uh, I don't know how uh, how was your Thanksgiving holiday? It was good. It was pretty simple um, because my wife and I are seeing family over Christmas, and that's eight hundred miles for both of us, no matter which set of families <laughs> we're seeing. So. We are putting off travel until Christmas. So it was just she and I, I mentioned on the last episode, we did a, a Friendsgiving the weekend prior. So that was, that was kind of nice, but the day of was pretty low key. We, you know, we, since we'd already had the turkey and all that stuff the previous weekend, we just kind of ate regular food and ate some leftovers from that Friendsgiving actually, and uh, baked some cookies. And um, yes, despite talking a big game about the parade being a little bit, you know, played out, we, we watched a little parade, we watched a little dog show. Dog show comes on after the parade. That's kind of a nice little treat. Um, and then we went to, we actually went to a, um, I'm sure other people are aware of this because it's a national chain at this point, but we went to Alamo draft house out here in Raleigh does showings of like, they'll, they'll put older movies on the big screen and make it kind of an event. So we went and saw planes, trains, and automobiles, uh, the 1987, uh, John Hughes classic starring John Candy and Steve Martin, a great Thanksgiving film. Uh, we went and saw that in the, in the theater. So that was, uh, kind of nice. And, you know, we were remarking as we were coming out of the movie that, What's kind of nice about that movie, by the way, is first of all, it's like an hour and a half in and out, but also like the scope of the movie was pretty narrow. Like it really is just a story of like these two people try, I don't want to spoil too much of it here, but goodness gracious, the movie's been out you know, almost 35 years now, but it really just is a story of two guys trying to get home for Thanksgiving. And like, they just tell like a nice clean, and by clean, I mean like tightly 
you know, written, like not clean in terms of his, <laughs> there is one scene in there where there are a lot of F-bombs dropped, but um, just a real tight story over an hour and a half and they get out. It was just simple. It didn't like creep, like we, we didn't drag, bring in tertiary characters to like really flesh out their stories. Like it seems like uh, movies sometimes get a little away from themselves and trying to do too much. And suddenly you're looking at two plus hours of a movie and you're trying to tie all these loose, loose knots. I don't even mean, it's one thing if it's like a Marvel superhero movie where you literally are trying to tie up loose ends from stories that existed three movies ago or, or what have you. Like, I'm just talking about any random standalone movie seems to maybe try to do a little much. I think we can learn a little bit from some of these older movies. That was one of, one of my big takeaways from seeing that in the theater. I, seen that movie in bits and pieces before but this i think was actually my first time seeing it all the way through so let's keep it tight hollywood that was my takeaway from uh my experience with planes trains and automobiles a lesson for us all really have you whether seen planes, whether you're running an email or or, yeah, a, right. or a screenplay so let's keep it tight have you seen planes trains and automobiles i have not no it's pretty good uh, yeah i would recommend it there aren't a ton of like classic Thanksgiving movies regardless. So uh, no. And there's a reason why it gets, I forget what channel it is. It's maybe it's AMC. Maybe it's Turner classic movies. Maybe it's one of the cable channels. I don't know that plays it all day on Thanksgiving. And I think it's a big reason why it's just like, what else are you going to do? You know? And by Thanksgiving, a lot of those movie, the, the, the types of channels that play movies all day on holidays and, and things like that, like have moved on to Christmas movies by now, which is fine. Like I'm for that. But uh, yeah, when you're talking Thanksgiving movies, the list is, relatively short indeed well we're now firmly into uh christmas movie season so you can uh you can gorge on all of those over over the next month uh here on the baseball america college podcast we're going to be gorging on off-season content for a little bit longer we're continuing to come at you once a week here on the Baseball America College Podcast, which you can subscribe to wherever you find your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify. Uh, make sure you're, you're subscribed and uh, you, you'll get us once a week before we crank up into preseason mode sometime in mid-January, at which point we'll be going at least twice a week, I'm sure, though Joe and I still have to flesh that out. Uh, but for now, again, it's, uh, it, it's, it's us going once a week almost always with an interview guest like today with, uh, with Mike Glavin and Joe, we, uh, we recorded this interview before Thanksgiving, uh, which will become obvious by the end of the interview. Uh, but it, it, it was, it was great to talk with him. The, this Northeastern program has grown an awful lot over the last decade, a little under a decade under his leadership and has really taken a, a big step forward in terms of, competing for CAA titles and, and competing for NCAA tournament appearances and developing big leaguers and, and all the rest of it, it, it has developed into one of the better mid-major programs. And despite the fact that they lose some important pieces from last year's team, which uh, was was a, a special team in, in many ways, they again look like they can contend for the conference title and, and for another trip to uh, to the NCAA tournament, which for, for them is, uh, you know, it, it, it's huge. And for really any program in the Northeast, we just don't see that kind of consistency from them for the most part. So I'm, uh, I, I was very excited to be able to have Mike Lavin on the podcast. And uh, Joe, I, I know you were pretty interested in it as well. So 
hopefully our, our listeners out there can uh, you know, learn a little bit more about this program, which, you know, despite having done all of that, I feel like Joe is, is still flying a little under the radar. I think so too. I mean, I think last year was the type of season where if, if their schedule had been a little bit different, where they had been able to, to, you know, notch another impressive series win against somebody more notable and, and who knows what their schedule would have looked like if they'd been able to have a full, you know, 56 or what have you, but it, the schedule just didn't work out when they're playing no disrespect, but when they're playing, you know, Delaware and, and Hofstra every weekend, um, that's just always going to be tough to break through. And I remember writing early last year in three strikes, one of my items, and it was actually like a secondary or tertiary item in the three strikes. It wasn't even the main gist of, of that particular week was kind of like, Hey, pay attention to what Northeastern is doing because their RPI is in pretty good shape right now. And if you assume they're going to run through the CAA, their half of the CAA schedule, which they didn't even necessarily dominate in the way that I anticipated they might, because I thought at one point they might go like, I forget how many games they were scheduled to play, but like 40 and six or something like that. They didn't quite do that, but they came pretty close. And it was clear to me early that, Hey, that this is going to be an interesting test case for the committee of they put up this big record, but they don't necessarily have a, a lot of marquee wins. They ended up getting some, they don't have a ton of marquee wins. And how do we value this comp, you know, this type of schedule they played. And, and little did I know that Fairfield would end up giving us like an even more interesting <laughs> case study in this case, but uh, Northeastern still was kind of, kind of interesting. And they ended up finishing the job and, and winning the auto bid, which kind of helped take some of the pressure off trying to figure out how the committee was, was going to view that. And, and it was a, a team that was, uh, very, very deserving. And I said it, they end up going to, to Fayetteville for their regional. And I said it on a, an Arkansas podcast leading up to that week. Uh, shout out Matt Jones. He, you know, he, he asked me like, okay, what do we know about this Northeastern team? And, and I, my big takeaway from them, and I saw them early last year against Wake Forest is that, you know, I think when you think of a, a, a team from the Northeast, I think you're kind of expecting fair or fair or not, you're kind of an, expecting undersized, underskilled, uh, scrappy, that type of thing. And, and they did have some scrap. I don't want to take that away from them, but you know, I told him if you lined up Northeastern's top 15 guys physically against Arkansas's top 15 guys, and they weren't wearing their uniforms, like it might be harder than you think to tell the teams apart. Because when you look at a guy like Jared Dupree, um, you know, and Sebastian Keene and Cam Schlittler and all those guys, um, not just in terms of physical size, but in terms of the stuff they're bringing to the table, like these are guys that could, they could play in those guys particular case those are guys that could play in the SEC. So this is not a situation where you've, you've got a kind of a, a plucky Northeastern team that has kind of got it rolling as a program. Like they're getting real dudes in this program. I mean, you do the recruiting stuff. So you see it happening every year as you write up the recruiting classes, like they're getting real guys up there and they're winning with those guys, which is, there's no huge surprise there. So there's, I mean, this is more than just, like I said, kind of a, a feel good story about a, nor a Northeastern program punching above its weight. Like there's something I think really happening with this program up there. Yeah. I mean, I I'm sure for a while it was happening with some of that more scrappy kind of guy, but you know, uh, Sebastian Keene was an 11th round unsigned 11th round pick from the Red Sox. He was a top 150 prospect on the BA 500 a couple years ago. Uh, they, again, this year are, you know, haul in a, a high school player who, who was drafted. Um, you know, th these are not common things for mid-major programs to do, um, but, it, but it does go to show what kind of, you know, what the opinion of, uh, 
of that coaching staff is from from players and you know also that yeah they're going after really high high end high school talent and they you know they they definitely have some real size on that team this year and and um you know both in in 2021 and, and moving forward um I, I i definitely see where you're coming from joe with the uh the the size comparison between northeastern and, and a power conference team and it's uh you know it, it, it they're an exciting team to watch if you uh if you saw any of them on tv last year whether you know it was the regional or the caa tournament or whatever um they uh they, they've got a lot going for them so uh with all that said let's uh let's get to our interview here with mike glavin head coach of the huskies uh we'll, we'll do that in a second but first check this out we're driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all don't search match with indeed if you need to hire you need indeed indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast ditch the busy work use indeed for scheduling screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster and indeed doesn't just help you hire faster 93 percent of employers agree indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent indeed survey what I love about using Indeed is how it does a lot of that organizational work for me. I can sort through candidates. I can respond to them. I can schedule interviews all through Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses, including Baseball America, that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Just go to Indeed.com slash Baseball America right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Today on the Baseball America College podcast, we are excited to be joined by Northeastern coach Mike Glavin. The Huskies are coming off of their second NCAA tournament appearance in the last three seasons. Uh, they won the CAA last year, uh, 36 games overall. Coach, it was uh, an impressive year, and you're in the midst of a, an impressive run overall at Northeastern, so we're glad to have you on here and, and get a chance to, to break down the Huskies today. Hey, Teddy. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's been, uh, yeah, we've been on a pretty good run here. So um, it's been fun. It's been, a, it's been a fun group of guys over these last couple of years to coach. And so just appreciate you having me on. I look forward to talking a little baseball. Well, let's, uh, let's go back to last season. Um, at the CAA tournament, you, uh, you, you battled UNCW pretty good there in Wilmington. Uh, a couple of really tough 
games down to the wire games to to win that that championship uh you know just to to be able to close out last uh last regular season with, with the championship with that group of guys uh doing it the way you did on a on a walk-off home run um or extra inning home run what what did what was that group uh like to in those kinds of close games in, in the CAA tournament yeah that it, you know that was it was a wild tournament um you know and, and those turn that tournament seems to usually be pretty wild we were actually looking up some of the scores the other day as a coaching staff just from previous tournaments we must have been a little bored but um some of the games are just crazy and in that last year was there was no exception so we just had an incredible group of guys you know veteran group right so those guys um you know we thought we had a pretty solid team th- during the COVID year when the year was shut down we thought we had a good team we were starting to starting to pick up steam and, and it was a veteran group and that group returned for us basically all intact um, last year. So we knew we had a veteran group, a group that had been through um, a regional parents already as an at-large team that had played in a lot of big games. So we felt like on paper that we had a team that was, was talented, but also was battle ready and tough. And, and we needed every bit of that in the tournament. So, you know, we felt good about the tight games. We had played in plenty of them during the season um, so we thought we were ready for it. And, you know, in Wilmington, I always speak so highly of the Wilmington program because to me it was like that was the team we had to beat to, to win a championship. It's always been that way. They've been the class of the conference here, it seems like, for a while now and have so much respect for Coach Scaff and now Coach Hood. And so, you know, to be obviously run into those guys under those circumstances on their field in the tournament, we knew we had our work cut out for us. But as you mentioned, it just seemed like I felt like we had a veteran group, a talented group, a tough group, and that's what we needed to get through through that tournament because it was crazy. You mentioned coming head-to-head with Wilmington. It was unique last year given the, the CAA's scheduling where they split in divisions because you hadn't really seen them. And conversely, the teams you were in the division with, you saw a lot of in the schedule. Yeah. So I'm curious what, you know, what kind of unique challenges or benefits did that pose that you end up playing the same teams a lot, but there were a lot of teams you, you didn't see until the CAA tournament. Yeah. It's a great question, Joe. And like a couple of things that, you know, one of the things that really helped us with is um, we didn't have to travel as much and, and that was a big deal. And it's always a, a challenge um, for us with how much we travel. We, we travel early in the season, obviously because of weather and, and where we're located. And so the first four weekends we tend to, you know, go down and back somewhere and play, play some, hopefully some big weekends. Um, and then you have four more travel turn uh, weekends during the, the regular season. So with this conference realigning last year, it, it cut down our travel, which I think gave us more energy at the end of the season. So that was a huge positive for us. Um, and then the other unique challenges, like you mentioned, where you hadn't seen any of those teams like Elon and Charleston and Wilmington and William and Mary, uh, JMU. So we hadn't seen those guys. So we didn't really didn't know what to expect. And, and I think that was just more of the unknown, right? So I don't think that bothered us. We could only play the schedule that was in front of us. But I think the biggest positive really was the travel piece and being able to play more home games. I think we played more home games than we played in, I don't know how many years, you know, being able to being able to do that was huge for us. And again, not hopping on a plane and flying to Elon, Charleston, Wilmington was, was big for us. So, um, you know, it it really helped us, I think with energy at the end of the year, we finished the season at Towson 
And I just thought it would make the most sense for us to stay on the road and keep traveling at that point and, and bust down to Wilmington and get settled in for the tournament. So, um, you know, it definitely provided some unique challenges, but some positives for us in the travel aspect. And then, and then you just got familiar with the teams you were playing, right? So you played them eight times and, and it was a lot, but you also, I think the last big piece I'd mentioned is our pitching, right? So we were, our side was playing four games a weekend. So we were forced to have four starters plus go deeper into our bullpen, use our bench more. So I think it presented a challenge to us that, that in the long run made us a better team overall from top to bottom, from one to 35, from the entire pitching staff to, to all our position players. So I think we really benefited from it and, and, and used it to our advantage. And, and um, you know, it obviously helped us in the long run. There was a month last spring, more than a month, I guess, where the Huskies did not lose a game. Uh, it was like a 20 game winning streak, ultimately. How superstitious did you get during that time? And just what, what's the energy of a team that hasn't lost a game in like five weeks? Yeah, we, you know, we actually we didn't get any superstitious at all. In fact, um, you know, once we kind of took over the, the the nation's longest win streak in you know college baseball, Division One college baseball, I started. I actually talked about it every day in front of the team. Um, every day when we broke it down in practice or um, after a win, you know, I said uh, I would bring up the streak, and and I did it really just for two reasons. I think one was to to um, put a little pressure on our guys. You know, I, I felt like maybe it would make us a little feel like there was some pressure and we we're playing under pressure. Like I, obviously we were playing really well at that time and felt good. Like we were going to be in the tournament. I, um, I didn't think we were concerned with that, but it was putting pressure on our guys and making sure that they stayed focused and locked in. So we were constantly talking about that streak every day. And then we also wanted to have fun with it. You know, I wanted our guys to play loose and learn, learn how it was going to be like to, to play under pressure under those circumstances. So we talked about it every day. We had fun with it. Um, it was something we embraced. We wanted to, uh, we wanted to extend it. And, and if you look how we had it and lost it, it was kind of almost in typical baseball fashion where we, we, um, you know, extended our win streak at Delaware and in a game where we, you know, we scored a lot of runs and the score was lopsided, but you know how those games go and they kind of just get out of hand and you save pitching. And, um, I think it was probably our biggest win of the year from a run differential perspective. And then they come out and Delaware beats us the next game and ends the streak. So, uh, but they beat us, which was great. We didn't make any mistakes. We didn't kick the ball around or anything like that. They just flat out beat us. So, but we had fun with us, fun with the streak. And I think it made us a better team. Um, and, and it taught us how to play under pressure, even though there wasn't as much pressure at that time from a wins loss perspective, it was more perceived pressure from the, from the winning streak. As we start to, Look ahead to 2022. I think one of the, the areas that people are, are excited to see is what you guys have on the mound. And even as you as you lose a guy in Kyle Murphy, who you know incredibly productive guy for you for a long time in that program, I think folks are excited to see a rotation you know fronted by Cam and, and Sebastian. And uh, what are your expectations for for those two guys in your in your weekend rotation as a whole going into next season? Yeah, you know, we missed Murph. He was a, obviously a veteran, gave us a lot and, and saved his best for last. He was awesome last year. Um, so we're going to miss him. But you're right. You know, we return again. We played for those four four games on a weekend. So we returned three of the four weekend starters and, and Cam Schlittler, um, you know, jumped on the scene last year. He was emerging the year before 
pitched awesome for us last year, was really a shutdown go-to guy. So, you know, we expect big things from him and Sebastian, you know, was a, is a high school draft pick. And, and again, another, another guy that really emerged last year, people knew his name more, but I thought he pitched really, really well. Um, and under a lot of pressure and both of those guys had not gone through a full college year. Right. So their freshman year was, was cut short due to COVID and then they didn't play any summer ball that year. And last year we had, we had a full fall season actually at Northeastern. Like we, we were, we were out there for the seven weeks. We were blessed to be able to do that. And then we went into our season and, and, and played almost a full season. We had a couple of, of shutdowns, but we, we got through the season and then those guys pitched all summer in the Cape. So, um, you know, we're expecting big things from Cam and Seb uh, come finally getting through a full season, knowing what it's like to go through the grind. I think they got tired over the summer. There's no question about it. I think they learned a lot about themselves and their bodies. So we expect thing, big things from Cam and Seb. Wyatt Scotty's back, who pitched great for us last year as a freshman and, um, and, and pitched down the Cape this summer as well. So we have those three guys back on the, in the, in the weekend rotation, hopefully, and we'll have, um, you know, I think a lot of bullpen parts and a couple freshmen stepping in. So I feel good about what we have on the mound. We'll have some inexperience in certain places, but that's what, you know, winter ball, you know, winter trainings for and, and early in the season. Hopefully we get those guys, you know, feet wet so they can get ready for the season. Jared DuPerry obviously had a sensational season last year, 21 home runs, was the, the CAA player of the year. Replacing him maybe doesn't fall down to one one player, but but how do you kind of reconfigure the offense with him now having moved on to, to Pro Bowl? Yeah, you nailed it. I don't we cannot replace him. And I've I've said that repeatedly. It's impossible. I would say, you know, I don't know if you guys have been ever been to our field, but um you know, it's a pretty big park and right. It's 342 down the line. It's it's 400 in center. You got to really get it to right, right field to hit a home run. And I, I think Jared honestly put up the best single season in our over 100 year program history. Um, I just have never seen anything like it. And big hit after big hit, home run after home run, took the walks when he needed it, stole bases. So he we cannot replace him. So we just start with that and kind of throw that out. And in a sense of, okay, and how, now what are we going to do? But we return a lot again and we return Danny Crossan and Max Vieira and Spencer, Spencer Smith and um, Corey DiLoretto and Jeff Costello. So we, we really, we return five, six starters from our lineup. And, and we have talked about that, as you mentioned, as a group, like, Hey, we're not asking you guys to, to fill Jared's shoes here and to, to, to hit 21 home runs or anything like that. You know, we're just asking everybody to, do what they did last year and maybe just a little tick up and, and, and improve like all these guys, you know, tend to do. And then you get new contributions, right? we got some new players coming in. We have some transfers here. We have some freshmen that we're really high on. Um, we have some guys that are, that were um, on our bench last year that I think are ready to take a big step forward. So realistically, you just, you have to go like one through nine to, to replace a guy like Jared. It's just going to have to be nine guys, jumping their game up a little bit and and doing a little more having a little better average or scoring more runs or whatever we need for them and stealing more bases so you know our power numbers are definitely going to take a step back it, i just don't see how you again you can't replace those 21 home runs but we'd like to think we'll have a really balanced lineup this year and we're going to be tough to pitch through one to one through nine a little bit of the secret sauce for last year's team was the way you defended 981 as a team and that'll obviously get the job done just about every time 
Uh, how does the, the 2022 team stack up defensively to be able to, to field a similar, uh, to give a similar look defensively as you had last year? Yeah, great question, right? So we'll return, we'll, and, and I'm glad you noticed that. I, th- I thought our defense was really kind of under the radar. We talked about our pitching and offense, but I thought our defense was outstanding. And we, we have an athletic team. We had one last year. I think we have a possibly even more athletic team this year. We're just guys that can really run. My, my whole goal, fellas, is to try to get guys that are completely unlike me when I played. Like, I couldn't run a lick. I was slow as molasses. So I love watching guys that can fly around the field and defend it and do different things. So um, we have that. So we'll, we'll re- we got some, we have returned Teddy Bodet behind the plate with J- JP Olsen. Greg Bozos look great this, this fall. So I think we're going to be really, really strong behind the home, uh, home plate and, and with some multiple guys that can help us. Spencer Smith is back up the middle for us. Who played shortstop for us last year? Max Vieira, who who had just an incredible freshman season, can defend it up the middle as well. So can Luke Beckstein, who transfers here from Kansas State, another plus plus defender. So I think we have three guys up the middle on the infield that can really defend it. And then you know, it looks like Mike Sirota, who was drafted out of high school, um, who's got a you know a six four runner with a plus plus arm is going to, is going to play center field for us. And, and he can really cover a lot of ground. He's had a tremendous fall. He's thrown out multiple guys at the plate and um, <clears throat> excuse me. So I think, I think defensively up the middle, right. Where you want to be strong. We, we return, return some veterans along with some young blood and guys that can really run. Um, so I feel like we're going to cover a lot of ground. I'm going to move Jeff Costello who played an outstanding left field last year. I'm going to move him to right field, which he's more natural at. Um, and then we're probably going to move Corey DiLoretto. Corey played first base for us um, at times last year, but again, is more of a natural left fielder. So I think we'll move him to left field. And, um, you know, I think defensively, I think we're going to be really strong again this year. A lot of athleticism, a lot of moving parts and guys that can play, play multiple positions. And again, with our field, the outfield is really big. We need guys that can really run down, run down baseballs in the outfield. And, and then we need that versatility on the infield because our field is turf and we do have some, some dirt infields in our conference. So we just need that ability to pick it, defend it, and be athletic. So I feel good about um, our defense again this year. This program seems like it has a lot of momentum. You've, like I said, you, you, you've been to the tournament two of the last three seasons. You're talking about uh, a couple of guys in Mike Sirota and Sebastian Keene who were drafted out of high school and were relatively prominent players, uh, you know, as high school players who, who choose not only to, to come to Northeastern, but to say no to the draft out of high school. How have you gone about, you know, building the, the program in your seven, eight years there now as, as head coach to, to a point where Northeastern is able to attract that kind of talent and continue to produce that kind of talent on, on the other end? Because, Obviously, there are lots of guys getting drafted and moving on to pro ball after their time as Huskies. Yeah, I mean, we've, you know, I feel like we've had a, we had a, I had a plan, you know, when I first took over and, and we've been able to execute it. Um, you know, it, it starts probably with having that clear plan. Like we really love the, the Northeast kid for our program. I think it just makes a lot of sense for us. Not that we don't love players all over the country, but it's just hard for us to recruit. We're not really able to recruit nationally we're not able to get out and see guys so I think it just made sense for us to narrow our focus down to our backyard to start really and just be as good as we can be in the New England area and that allows us to 
you know, see players multiple times, put better evaluations on guys, take chances on guys, um, and, and get to develop relationships with the high school and summer coaches. So I think that was like our goal. Goal number one was really just to be as strong as we could be in our backyard here in New England um, and, and keep these players local, keep them here, play in front of their families, allow them to, you know, be able to go home on, on days off when they want to and things like that and show them the value of playing close to home um, and really just finding those players that, that fit that mold for us. So, and we love multi-sport athletes. So we really try to get the guys that play hockey or football or soccer or something else, basketball. Um, so, so we've kind of had that plan of really just trying to be the best we could be in our backyard here in New England, get the multi-sport athletes spread out to New York, New Jersey. Of course, we have players on our roster from there, such talented states there. And again, I think that's a natural fit for us to be able to recruit in New York and New Jersey. So sort of just put that plan in place of where we were going to recruit and and how we could see kids on multiple bases just to, to get the best um, evaluations we could. And then I think just finding kids that are the right fit, again, that have that toughness, that mentality. Like we have plenty of things to overcome here at, at Northeastern, a lot of obstacles, a lot of, you know, we love the tough players that have the chip on their shoulders. And, and we do have obstacles here, our fields off campus, you know, we share it with our soccer fields and, um, you know, we have teams, we have weather issues that we need to overcome. So we, it's really important for us to find the right fit for the kid that really wants to play in that type of atmosphere. So, and then of course, I think really just blessed to have great, great assistant coaches um, our staff's been intact here for a little while now. Coach Cobb, Coach Puccio, Coach Bosco do an incredible job of identifying talent at an earlier age, getting on guys a little earlier um, and, and really just just, you know, evaluating players at a high level and 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 getting the right players here. So it's been a combination of that having that plan being great in our backyard in the northeast or trying to be and having great assistant coaches that really know how to recruit and work hard. You mentioned liking multi-sport athletes. Um, your, your brother, Tom, was famously drafted in both NHL and MLB. How much, uh, how much hockey did you play growing up, though? Uh, I played. I played. I was like, uh, I, was, I was obviously not even as close to being as good as him, but that's all right. I was trying. I had fun. It was a seven-year age difference. And so I was always trying to keep up with, with older brother there, but um, you know, up here, like, I played way more hockey than baseball, which I think some of our recruits do as well. You know, you can kind of play, play hockey all year round and baseball is becoming a little more year round up here. Right. But it's, it's obviously indoors and there's a lot of um, outstanding indoor facilities up here in the Northeast that guys get, can get their baseball workouts in, in the winter, but um, definitely played a lot more hockey growing up and uh Tried to follow in the in the in the big bros footsteps and failed miserably. But I think there's, you know, again, that's how we were raised by our parents and kind of grew up. And so that's kind of tried to tried to um, add that to our team. Right. And just kind of love those multi-sport guys, like I said, because that's kind of what we did growing up. And once baseball was over, you put the hockey skates on, you played hockey. And once hockey was over, you went on to something else. So um, that doesn't mean there aren't great players that specialize. I don't want to get into really that debate, but it just tends to like in the Northeast where you can get those players that have a big upside and, and try to develop them um, when they get here. So we, we love those guys and, and love talking hockey with the guys that played. I'll ask you one final important question here and just 
for the listeners, we are we're recording this just before Thanksgiving, but this will run after Thanksgiving. So we uh, we last asked our last guest, Baylor coach Steve Rodriguez, about his favorite part of a Thanksgiving meal. So now that we're past Thanksgiving, we will ask you, Coach Glavin, what is the best way to eat Thanksgiving leftovers? Well, my mom has always made uh, hot turkey sandwiches, so we always she'll 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 cut the turkey up, put uh, get some Wonder Bread, um, like back in the back in the day when I was growing up, and she she cut the turkey up, put it on put it on the Wonder Bread, get the gravy nice and hot, um, and then and then pour the hot gravy over the over the open face sandwiches. Um, with the Wonder Bread, the turkey, the gravy, a little little bit of homemade stuffing that that uh, dressing that my dad always made. Um, so sprinkle that on there as well, and just kind of have an open face hot turkey sandwich. So that that was so that's our sort of our family tradition to have have one of those. And if it's a great day, it's usually the night of Thanksgiving, even though I've already stuffed myself. But I'll either have one of those that night and and watch some football hanging out, or you do it you do it the next day and and uh, the day after Thanksgiving. So that's always been a great family tradition for us. Yeah, that's, uh, that, that Thanksgiving night can sometimes be tricky. If you eat your Thanksgiving meal early enough, you get stuffed, but then you find yourself kind of caught in between, you know, between dinner and bedtime where you're like, ah, you know, I could probably go for a little something else. But I mean, I, I'm with you that that's kind of the, the good way to do it because the trick with leftover turkey, I feel like, is it starts to dry out a little bit, you know, yeah. it gets a little tougher to work with. So you, you got to slather the gravy on, or sometimes I'll do like a, I'll put it on a sandwich, but I'll do barbecue sauce sometimes on it just to kind of give it a little different, a little different feel. But you, you really do have to give it some sort of sauce because, you know, day three and day four can be kind of tough if if it's been in there a while, getting a little getting a little dry on you. Absolutely. You got to You got to you got to put some biscuits on there, or gravy or something to make it a little, little, little uh, seasoned and uh, yep. get those last couple of bites if you don't make that turkey soup out of it. But no matter what, it's always a great time. And it's uh, those leftovers are always fun to eat. Absolutely. I mean, you gotta, gotta finish it up somehow. So we, uh, we're looking forward to, uh, to getting those leftovers going. I mean, obviously the main thing is the main thing, but the leftovers, that's, uh, that's, that's a key part of any Thanksgiving. We, uh, we appreciate you taking some time for us here on the baseball America college podcast, uh, Northeastern. We're very excited to see them, uh, out on the diamond this coming season as, uh, as you guys get back and, competing into the the full CAA schedule this year. So uh, we appreciate you you breaking it down for us today. Yeah, I really appreciate you guys having me on. Love everything that you do for baseball and college baseball. And uh, this is a great time of year, a little calm before the storm, right? Before the season gets here, before we know it, we're less than 100 days out. So again, thanks for, thanks for having me on. Appreciate everything you guys do and uh, enjoy the break before the season gets here. Thank you again to Mike Glavin for joining us here on the Baseball America College podcast. Uh, Joe, we, uh, we we heard a lot from him there. I, again, like, like I said before the interview, I just feel like this program has still uh, run a bit under the radar in recent years. I, it, it clearly is the tide is turning on that. But, um, you know, in, in the CAA, I, it, it does feel like they have become an annual contender with uh with unc wilmington uh really and college of charleston as as kind of the the consistent heavyweights near the top of this conference yeah i think sometimes these things just take time like you know we, we even as it, the media when we pay attention to this stuff really really closely it can take us a couple of years to really adjust to a new normal here so i think there's some of that at play i think also 
there's the hill to get over of doing it in the postseason. Um, you know, for as much as I talked them up on an Arkansas podcast about how, you know, this team could really play with Arkansas that weekend, it was actually it wound up being NJIT. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it ended up being NJIT that really kind of uh, stole the show. I mean, to the extent that, you know, that, that was a thing they, they didn't get to the regional final, but you know what I mean? Like they, they punched above their weight and Northeastern really disappointed. And you go back to their previous regional trip and they disappointed there too. And regionals are fluky things. I, I never, I try not to read too much into Owen two showings in a regional because what difference does it make really if they'd have won one more game. Right. So uh, I try not to buy too much into that, but that is the type of thing where if you're a program trying to announce yourself on the national scene, that that is the kind of thing that can stick in people's minds and start to turn the tide in the way they, they think about you. So I think that is a little bit of a next step. I also think seeing this team playing good competition and it is the, I think it is Mike Glavin's goal to play aggressive schedules and, and test his team a little bit. I mean, obviously they have to get out of uh, Massachusetts early in the season, regardless. So you might as well play some quality competition. They have not as of this recording announced their 2022 schedule yet, but I think he is of the mind of being a little bit aggressive with their scheduling. So hopefully they'll get some chances early in the season. Cause that's the other thing, right? Is sequencing is a funny thing in, sports scheduling and sometimes those early impressions can really go a long way even if maybe the the nature of the season or nature of the team changed throughout the campaign uh you know getting some of those types of wins early on can really announce yourself even if maybe it's not quite a, a full view of, of what you are as a team so there are some things that have kind of worked against them in that way but if they continue to do the things that they've done over the last several years like it'll get there it just might take some time yeah absolutely and you know we we talked there about them losing Dupree. Um, but you know, with, uh, with Schlittler and Keen, they're going to have some high end prospects. So there is going to be reason to, uh, you know, scouts are going to be very much continuing to be on the Huskies, uh, this year. And, and if you're a draft Nick, um, you know, there's reason to watch them early, no matter who they're playing, uh, they're, they're going to be good on the mound and, and there's going to be some, some good matchups there to, to be found. So, I'm uh, I'm interested to see how they line up the pitching staff, how they you know go about replacing some of these these spots in the the lineup that they need to work with. But it's uh, it, it's there for them to again um, be a a team that that early in the season when they are playing some of these non conference games that uh, that they're they're going to have an opportunity to go out and get some some big wins. Yeah, I think they'll. I think you hit it on the head there with the pitching. I think that they were pretty balanced last year, you know, good offense. Obviously the pitching was quite good. Would you pre being gone? I think the nature, we talked about this with coach Glavin. I mean, I think the nature of their offense is just going to naturally have to, to change a little bit, might have to be a little more athletic and, and, and win games in a little different way. Um, but they've got enough returning. I think there should be some, some confidence, you know, Jeff Costello, Max Vieira, guys like that. But on the mound, I, mean, I think the mound is, especially when you talk about what they're going to see throughout most of the CAA, I think that, is the game changer there because Schlittler and Keen, sure. I mean, those might be the two best arms in the CA and I'm sure I'm disrespecting somebody by, by leaving them out there, but you know, they have Dennis Collar in the bullpen, who's a mid nineties arm and they're bringing in a division uh, three transfer named Jordy Allard, who doesn't have quite that same stuff, but he's one of the guys I'm most fascinated to see in division one this year, because his numbers at division three Babson last year are just bonkers insane. Uh, you know, pounds the strike zone, you know, ERA under one. Um, so those transition up guys can kind of be a little bit hit or miss. Um, but, you know, uh, if they really hit, they can be a huge boon for a team. And, and I think 
you know, this coaching staff isn't going to bring up somebody just to kind of fill in a, you know, fill in some, some mop up innings necessarily. So I, I think he's kind of a guy to watch. And I think that the pitching staff as a whole is, is the differentiator there. I think they'll still probably score plenty of runs. Um, but I think the pitching is going to have to do a little more heavy lifting, but I think it's ready to do so. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, those two guys spent the summer on the Cape and, um, you know, they're, they're two of the, like you said, I, I don't, I don't think there's going to be anyone in, in the league that has two better arms than that. So, uh, a, a lot to be said, uh, for what, what the Huskies are doing there, uh, and, and a lot to look forward to in 22 and beyond, uh, Joe, we, uh, we didn't touch on, I guess you kind of touched on this, that, that you, you ate some Thanksgiving leftovers actually on Thanksgiving. Uh, we asked coach Glavin, but what is, uh, what is your preferred Thanksgiving leftover strategy? I mean, I go pretty much straight up with the sides. Like there's only so much you can do with the sides unless you're going to kind of just combine them all to do like a little bit of uh, some sort of um, casserole situation. Um, so I, I ate those pretty much straight up. We had some green beans left and some, some potatoes left. Uh, unfortunately, I'm going to fire some shots. Somebody's going to catch some strays here. Like uh, we, the person who brought the mac and cheese to our gathering, and it was absolutely delicious, uh, just took it all back with her. Um, so we didn't really get to enjoy that afterwards, which, I mean, it's fine. Like ultimately, it's not that big. But it would have been nice to have a little bit of mac and cheese left over. Uh, so did that straight up. But then on the, on the uh, leftover meat, so we had a little bit of chicken left over and then a little bit of turkey left over. And I just, you know, if I'm not doing a sandwich and I didn't do sandwiches this time, I will often do sandwiches. I like to just drown it in some kind of sauce and just do it as is. So I'll do turkey with, with barbecue sauce, or I'll do maybe some honey mustard um, to give it some new life. Cause it does start to dry out after a while. Like we, like we mentioned, it does not keep the moisture throughout all leftovers time and again, as well as you might like. So just, just really drown it in some sauce, doing the side straight up, nothing too fancy. Yeah, that's uh I, I think the sandwich or that are probably the the two most uh, most common ways to go about it. I'm I, I saw a lot of people doing sandwich with the turkey and the stuffing and the the cranberry sauce all in one sandwich, which sounds fine. Like might not be the way I would attack, but that's fine. But I also saw some people then putting gravy on top of that, and I'm I'm out if you're putting gravy in with your cranberry sauce. Like you need one or the other. I, I don't I don't need both. I agree. That is, that is interesting. The cranberry sauce on that we've discussed before, not a big cranberry sauce guy, but as a, as a condiment on a sandwich, uh, I, that, that could work. Um, I'm not a huge gravy guy. Generally, I will eat it as part of the original meal. I, I don't, I'm not someone who's like ladling the gravy back over the turkey as I eat it as leftovers. I'm just not that big of a gravy guy. So, um, it, some still exist as I'm using the leftovers, but I'm not, I'm not going out of my way to repurpose the gravy. And I know that's, that's probably blasphemy to a lot of folks listening right now. It is surprising, but I will say I had no gravy at Thanksgiving this year. My fiance's parents are Egyptian and gravy is very much an American thing. And that's not to say that they don't eat gravy. It's just to say they forgot to make the gravy. And uh, like, I know a lot of our listeners are probably like, how could you possibly forget to make the gravy? Well, I mean, it just, it, it was forgotten to be made, so it, it didn't exist. It's also gravy is one of those things that if you've ever like seen it made from scratch, scratch, like it's not the most attractive thing to see get made. And so like, it is kind of one of those things I think for some people that if you, if you see how 
you know, almost quite literally the sausage in the case of sausage gravy, how the, the sausage gets made. Um, that's not exactly something that is, would probably make you make it seem more appetizing. Some things as they're being cooked are, are make it more appetizing. I don't think gravy is necessarily one of those things. I think it's, you just want to see the finished product and not think about it. I think that's fair. I mean, it obviously, it, it largely depends on how you're going about doing this. It, but the more complex your gravy, the more you, the more true that that is, I, I, I feel like. Yeah, a lot of uh, a lot of fatty pieces going into gravy making a lot of times, you know, you get a lot of, uh, so if that's a texture nightmare for you, then uh, that's, that's going to be a hard thing to mentally overcome. Indeed. All right, so that's, uh, that's Thanksgiving leftovers with, uh, with Joe and Teddy, I guess I should say <laughs> that um, I, uh, I didn't really have any Thanksgiving leftovers yet. Um, I, if I have like my own turkey to mess around with, like, I like to repurpose it in interesting ways but this year i uh i'm going more of the joe route just uh repeating the meal yeah i was i was and i was ready by the time we we actually weren't able to get through all of the leftovers just my wife and i because you know the opposite of the what happened with the mac and cheese happened with like every other thing where and i get this i've been to to, to parties and, and dinner parties and stuff or get togethers where you bring food and like you don't really want to take it home with you necessarily because that's just kind of a bother so you just leave it or you, you hope they, they take it. So we actually did it up like way too much for just the two of us. So we, by the time we were done eating the leftovers, I was kind of glad to be done eating the leftovers. I'll be honest. Yeah, that certainly happens as well. All right. So Joe, you, uh, you, you wanted to talk some, uh, some more mid majors. And, uh, so I will, I will let you introduce, uh, whatever your, your thing is here, because frankly, uh, I can't do it. Uh, we're, we're all going to learn about this together. Well, it won't be anything that'll stretch us too, too, uh, thin here because we, we have not yet really done the deep dives. Like, uh, you know, there, there are teams that we learn about as the preseason process goes on, as we, as we look at the information that coaches have sent us or conversations we've had and their teams kind of sneak up on you. Uh, the teams here though, probably not sneaking up on anybody, not just us, but also teams they play this season. So I, I guess I will just first, knowing what you know now, understanding that we don't know all about these teams quite yet. We haven't seen them with our own eyes, the 2022 versions of them anyway. We really haven't, you know, even, I think even the coaches would tell you, like, we don't really know exactly what this team is yet. But just knowing what you know about them, which of these three teams would you pick to go furthest in 2022? And I, I think there's an, I will preface this by saying, I think there's an argument and a different argument to be made and a reasonable argument to be made for each of the three. It just depends on how you want to attack this question. So the three options are Northeastern, Campbell, or DBU. Which do you think you would bet on going furthest in 22? Wow. Um... You know, I, I I think my answer is DBU because we've seen how high the ceiling is for the Patriots. They just went to Super Regionals. It wasn't their first Super Regionals appearance. They've hosted a regional. They play in the toughest conference, which means that they have the best chance of being a one or a two seed. Um I like a lot of the talent they have coming back. Obviously, you know, they like Northeastern kind of lost the focal point of their offense. Um, and they don't necessarily have like two guys certainly as prominent as Schlitter and Keen 
to, to lead the pitching staff, but just knowing how well DBU accumulates talent, how well Dan Hefner puts his teams together and knowing the ceilings involved. I, uh, I, I think my answer has to be DBU. Uh, I didn't touch on Campbell at all there. Uh, they maybe have the best player on the board here in Zach Neto. In fact, I would go so far as to say they do. Um, you know, really good two-way player for, for the Camels and a, a really good shortstop prospect for the draft. Uh, but, you know, as good as Campbell's been, they're a little more on the Northeastern track as in like, well, I guess they have been to some regional finals. They just haven't broken through and playing in the big South. You can ask coastal how hard it is to, you know, be a, a top seed in a regional like that. Um, so I, I think that they, they fall just a touch behind DBU for, for me. So you, you pretty much nailed the DBU argument here. It's the, the floor is high. Like you just know what the baseline we're getting from DBU because we're talking about a really long track record here. They also, you mentioned that in the Missouri Valley gives them a much better chance of being a one or two seed. It also just frankly gives them a better chance of getting into the postseason because as talented yeah, as, it, be, being an at large from the big South almost doesn't happen. Yeah. And it's possible from the CAA, but it's difficult. Right. I mean, there's a very real scenario as talented as, as Northeastern and Campbell are, they have two bad weeks where the injury bug bites or, you know, whatever else they lose some games they shouldn't lose. And all of a sudden they go from, you know, solid in to out of the bubble picture altogether. Right. So there just is a little more risk with, with those two programs. Now, what I will say about Campbell is that I think with the way they've scheduled, they typically schedule pretty good to begin with, but the way that they've scheduled, I feel like they think they might have an at-large team because I mean, I should say I, I kind of write off the big South as an at-large. I mean, Campbell was an at-large team last year. It's a good point. <laughs> we just kind of, cause yeah, they <laughs> bit of a goofy year, obviously, yeah. but they did just get in as an at-large um, uh, j- just the, this last year. Yeah. Shout out Presbyterian. Uh, one of these stranger <laughs> automatic bids that I, I mean, truly shout out to them because it, it, the stories like that are great. Like, cause those kids, you know, that, that's a, a crowning achievement for that program and it never would have thought it happened. So, but yes, you're, so you're right. But I, I think with the way they've scheduled here, I, I think Justin Hare and his staff think they have a, a, an at-large team here because Maryland comes to Bowie's Creek the second weekend of the season. That's a good opponent. They're playing in a tournament uh, in Fayetteville, North Carolina, which is where they, they play the Big South tournament. Um, they're playing Ohio. It's also State. just right down the road from Bowie's Creek, really. Right, not far. Uh, it's basically a home tournament for those guys. But Ohio State, Army, Pitt, um, three pretty solid teams there. Ohio State and Pitt, probably helpful from an RPI standpoint, certainly not hurting anything. Um, they have a series with Liberty the weekend after that. And, and frankly, like, I don't, I just haven't spent as much time looking at Liberty this offseason, but that's probably a program we could lump into this conversation given, you know, recent history. I think they went 19 and two in the A Sun last year or something absurd. Um, and then after the Liberty series, they've got West Virginia coming to Bowie's Creek. Not to mention, of course, kind of their typical midweek schedule, Charlotte, UNCW, NC State, East Carolina, like all of that stuff um, in the midweek, Duke, UNC. Like I, I think these guys think they've got a team um, given that schedule. So they're, so getting an at-large there might not be that the task that, that it often is in the big South given that schedule, of course, but I think it still stands that there is more risk in that conference versus the Missouri Valley. And Zach Neto, you mentioned him being the best player on the board. I think that is true. 
they've also just got a lot of really good arms. Like I really like Thomas Harrington, who I think is their best starting pitching arm. Um, you know, they've got, but they've got probably three, four other guys who are throwing mid nineties. Um, you know, a couple in the bullpen, a couple of guys that, that might start his first name is escaping me, but Beamer is it Jonathan Beamer, um, Campbell's rotation. Um, another guy who has some track record, um, really good stuff. Uh, I think it's a really well-rounded team. I, this is a t- like, it's one of those questions. I posed the question and don't really didn't have an answer coming into it was kind of hoping to find my way to an answer as we, as we go through, I think I'm buying on Campbell a little bit. I understand that's tricky that the default answer is probably DBU, but just to be a little bit different, I might, I might go Campbell. I feel like I'm bought in on this Campbell team pretty well. Um, I liked him last year. They fought really hard in the regional. Um, you know, I think, I think it was a regional final last year. Um, and I think that that could be the type of team they have, they have here again. So, you know, DBU, again, we talk about the floor being really high, but you know, it's kind of funny. We, they lost Jackson Glenn in the lineup. And I think you and I actually had this literal conversation last year offline where it was like, yeah, I guess DBU is kind of the favorite in the Missouri Valley. Uh, that that's kind of the default assumption at this point when you go into every season and I'm just not really sure who, you know, makes their lineup go. Like maybe it's someone like Jackson Glenn and it turned out to actually, yes, be exactly Jackson Glenn, but on the mound, they do, you know, they lose Red Coba, they lose uh, Dom Hamill. Those were their two best guys. And it was a pitching staff that was pretty thin by the time they got to the postseason last year. So I know they like the raw talent they have on the mound there. Um, it's just not a lot of proof on the, on the mound there. So I will always bet on DBU to figure it out, but there are more questions there. It feels like than than there has often been. So I, I think they're still the favorite in the Valley, but if we're talking about this rarefied air of these really, really good mid-major programs, there, there are some questions there that, that make me think that Campbell could be a team that eclipses them in terms of performance. I mean, if we want to go, I mean, this is going too deep into, into the, I, I, I think at this point, but I'll go here anyway. DBU is likely, assuming they don't host, and we're not talking about them as a host here, likely to have to deal with Texas or Texas Tech or, you know, maybe Oklahoma State or something. And, you know, I don't know. I guess we really like Virginia, but I don't know that teams in in, in the neck of the woods where Campbell is likely to get sent are going to be quite the same level of difficulty in terms of, of playing in regionals, especially considering that they, most of this team is going to have experience playing at Starkville. Uh, you're not, you're not going to see many places that are harder to play in uh, than that. So, you know, maybe, maybe that plays into it that they got that experience in Starkville and, you know, they, maybe they can get a, a touch easier draw than, than DBU, which, I mean, it's very easy to see them having to go down to Austin and play a team that we figure to be the number one overall seed in the tournament. Yeah, it's a good point. Uh, You know, the the host situation in the Carolinas has has not been as strong as it has been at other points in um, in the Carolinas and the Eastern Seaboard has not been as strong as it has been in in the recent uh, past. Yeah, I mean, like you would figure maybe NC State, maybe East Carolina, you know, maybe Virginia, maybe Georgia, you know, any of these are, are, are possibles, uh, Duke, you know, UNC, whatever, but um, none of them are, are as highly regarded right now as Texas or as, 
uniquely difficult to play in as Texas Tech. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, East Carolina, like a similar, you know, type of team in terms of playing well at home, but there's a different, you know, Texas Tech, just that track record is so much longer and, and obviously well, much and better also, getting well, Lubbock, Lubbock is so different, right? It's, it's such a, a unique weather environment with all the wind and everything like, you know, East Carolina, not that far away from Campbell, um, not a launch and pad necessarily like every, everything Campbell is used to is, is there in Greenville. No doubt. DBU also interesting schedule for DBU. Like it's a good schedule. Um, but I say that before I say that it's definitely the type of schedule you look at and you, as you're scrolling through it, you're like, oh, okay, this, you know, this is interesting. This is some good stuff here. And then you kind of like, then you dig like a little deeper and you're like, well, this is more like a name a schedule that would have been really good in like 2014. You know, you've got, so you start off with SEMO and they were really good last year. That's kind of the exception, but they have Sam Houston, you know, it hasn't been the program that, uh, you know, not, not, they haven't been the last couple of years, what they were in 2016, 2017, what have you Then same, they're on the road to San Diego again, kind of a similar story. They do then get Southern Miss. I think Southern Miss should be pretty good. And then they have Oral Roberts after that. And they play Oral Roberts quite a bit, but, but again, Oral Roberts, you know, still the most talented team in the summit league, but not Oral Roberts, not the type of team anymore, or at least as often that is going out and, and winning a lot of marquee series against competition outside the league in the way that they did, you know, say 10 years ago or so. So, but certainly given the quality of the Missouri Valley, which we have to assume um, will once again be, be quite good given that quality and what they have here, it's, it's a perfectly, perfectly good schedule to set them up to be what they are every year. And if they really run through it, like hosting is certainly on the table with the schedule, but it's not, uh, you know, it's kind of somewhere in between um, a cupcake schedule and a, and a blockbuster of a schedule. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that that is uh, an intriguing thought exercise. Uh, let us know your thoughts. You can find us on Twitter. I'm at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy BA, given that this is uh, a, a podcast with Mike Glavin on it. I assume that there are some Northeastern fans tuning in that are saying, well, why, why are you guys not talking about us? Uh, rest assured, the, uh, the Huskies certainly capable of doing it. We, uh, we shall see, uh, which one of these three teams Joe has, has chosen will, uh, will come through and, and play the deepest into June, 2022, uh, in the NCAA tournament. Joe, before we get out of here, the biggest news around college sports this week, potentially in the sports world period, at least until major league baseball locks out later this week in all likelihood has been the, uh, the college football coaching market being blazing, blazing hot here as the, uh, the off season vaguely kind of starts here slash, you know, the, it, it's this weird week in college football going at, at the end of the regular season before championship week. And we saw Oklahoma coach Lincoln Riley leave uh, to become the head coach at USC and Notre Dame coach Brian Kelly leave to become the head coach at LSU among other moves. And that Kelly move has, you know, because Notre Dame is as high as they are in the college football playoff rankings, they still have an outside chance. Some people maybe think they have a better than an outside chance at reaching the playoff. And so the timing of his departure from South Bend to Baton Rouge is, causing all sorts of consternation. This is something that baseball does not deal with. And, and I was kind of thinking through that yesterday as the, this news was breaking, why basketball and baseball don't deal with this. 
does it just because there are 64 teams in those tournaments, 68 in basketball's case, that uh, you know he would have been busy, you know, getting ready for the tournament, and LSU just would have waited another couple of weeks, or is it because signing day is so soon in football? Like I, I, th- there's a lot of worry that I guess that this kind of thing could become more common. But I mean, if you look at these other sports, there's no evidence of that. So I was I was just kind of trying to think through the differences between football and, and baseball here. It's an interesting thought. And, and <laughs> let me say up front, you know, not uh, an expert in college. I do follow a lot of college football and college basketball, as Teddy knows, because we, we do plenty of talking about those sports offline um, and sometimes even on the podcast. But uh, so, but certainly not the expert on those sports as, as much as with college baseball. So I, you know, understand that as, as we go into this conversation, but I think there are kind of a few things that are all feeding off of each other in this specific case. I do think we may get more of this. And I think that the signing period is a big driver and that that's what I've heard from, from people who would know is that there's a lot of anxiety about making sure you have a staff that is in place to recruit through the signing period and be able to not have that just be a um, I don't want to say dead period because that's an actual term, but like uh, just a dead zone of time for your program. So I, I, th- I think that is driving a lot of it. I think what exacerbated those issues this year is just the sheer volume of blue bloods, the bluest of blue blood programs out there having coaching openings. And also the fact that two of the biggest ones and the, the programs that have landed the two biggest fish, if you will, in this cycle, USC and LSU opened so early. Like those, those programs have been looking for theoretically looking for coaches now for, I don't know, six, eight weeks at this point. And so I do think that those things are all playing on each other. I think the signing day piece will make this continue to be a little bit of a trend, but I think this trend will only continue if the trend of these programs bailing on coaching staffs early in the year um, continues, because I think that was a big driver of this particular one. I also think it's not for nothing that the, the point that you brought up is also valid about the NCAA tournament in baseball and basketball tying coaches up for longer. I do think there is something to the fact that we finished the regular season of college football, basically Thanksgiving weekend for all intents and purposes. And then we don't really start playing bowl games at all for like another two or three weeks. And then we really don't start playing the big bowl games for like a month. And so I do think there is that kind of in-between period where you know, the, the, the previously the third rail on this has been the playoff. If you're a coach in, in playoff position like that, you know, that would be maybe an exception to the rule. But if you're coaching in whatever, you know, bowl game, uh, Music City Bowl, like you're probably not going to wait up to coach that and then start talking, having your agent talk to people because by then stuff's been filled. So I think that break there does lend itself to that in football. Obviously, we've not had the issue of coaches in playoff position um, really uh, being a part of these types of conversations. So that was a little fascinating wrinkle here. So I, I do think there are a lot of things that insulate schedule wise, basketball and baseball from having to deal with this. But I, I think the 2021 cycle in football was set off just by a confluence of events that I just don't know that will ever have happen again like this. Yeah. It, it's interesting that, you know, in baseball, LSU just had an opening as well. And yes, the Tigers played, into super regional weekend uh but you know they had to wait until arizona was done before they could you know get into it with jay johnson and and ultimately hire him um you know they talked to other people in the interim of course but they uh you know they they had to wait 
And I guess that's because there was actively a tournament going on. Um, you know, AM went a few weeks without a coach, obviously, after firing Rob Childress. And they did that before SEC tournament started because they didn't, um, you know, they didn't qualify. But they still had, they had to wait until Jim Schlossnagel and TCU were out before they could make a move on that. So it, it just does, I don't know if this is a football specific thing, if this is a 2021 specific thing, if it, if any of this will ever wander over into, into baseball. But, um, you know, part of me does just kind of think that this is a problem of football's own creation because of the creation of the early signing day, but also the level of consternation that's going on right now about Brian Kelly's move. Um, you know, it, it might just be a one-off perfect storm kind of situation. I guess we will, we will have to wait and see. You know, by the way, just before we before we close the shop here, it is kind of crazy that we went from, and again, probably a specific 2021 thing because the, the brands that were looking for coaches here, but the idea that we are not but 18 months removed from a period of time when we were being told that athletic department budgets were just going to be, and I get, cut it off the pass, I know like paying coaches is oftentimes not done from the general budget of the athletic department. That money is coming from boosters and other outside sources. So I get it. However, there was a lot of like hand wringing about the idea that, and actually maybe some people were kind of like, kind of quietly applauding that, Hey, maybe coaching salaries might and buyouts and things of that nature, like might actually get a little more in line with what seems um, based in reality here, as opposed to just ever ballooning numbers and uh oh boy has that not <laughs> has that not played out um at all like we we are very much back into where we left off pre-pandemic and, and you know for the overall health of athletic departments and universities and stuff i think that is a a relatively good sign although someone like matt brown would tell us that that's not you can't necessarily do a one-to-one -one there but i do think it is generally a good sign for the health of athletic departments and things of that nature but it is a very different world from what we thought we might be living in at this point Indeed, where nine, ten million dollar deals for for college football coaches are now the uh, it's kind of the starting point for the the blue bloods. Yep. If you um, if you want a big name, that's where you're. I mean, you're you're looking at what is that? Eight figures a year, basically. Yeah. It's uh, it's a different world. Different world. Indeed. <laughs> uh, yeah. So we'll uh, we'll continue to follow these uh, overarching developments, I guess, throughout college athletics. Uh, as they go. Um, as I mentioned before, make sure you're subscribed to the Baseball America College podcast on your favorite podcasting app as we continue to come at you weekly throughout the offseason. And you can follow Joe and I on Twitter. I'm at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy BA. We will be back here next week with another edition of the Baseball America College podcast. Till then, uh, thank you to Rapsodo for presenting this and every episode of the podcast. Thank you to Mike Glavin for joining us. For Joe, I'm Teddy. We'll talk to you next time.
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.